Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Liverpool Comedy Improv Cast with me, Ian Luke-Jones. This is where we get to know the people who make up the LCI community and today's guest is the fascinating fun ball of energy that is EJ Huerta. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review and subscribe to the show to give us a boost and help get our name out there. Now it's time to go off script and find out EJ's true story about making stuff up. And please welcome to the podcast. It's this week's guest, EJ. Welcome, EJ. Hello. Great to be here. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. You're a really interesting character that I've not really had a lot to do with in improv and hopefully we'll have a lot more to do with in future. Um, And can I just get you to tell everyone where it is that you're actually uh, calling in from today? Yes, today I am calling you, it's about eight in the morning, no, it's 10 in the morning in sunny Southern California, Santa Barbara. Lovely. I've been to Santa Barbara. It's a lovely place. You have? Yeah. Just once and very briefly, but uh, I had a nice time while I was there. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, past eight in the morning for you. It's past six in the evening for me. So I'm speaking to you from the future. That's right. <laughs> That's right, you are. What's it like over there? <laughs> uh, it's okay in the future. Nothing catastrophic has happened, so all is good. And you're in England, right? You're in um, Liverpool? Uh, yeah, Liverpool Comedy Improv. I myself am from Wales, however. Oh. So I'm from North Wales. Yeah, you and I have had a conversation about Ruffin, haven't we? Yes, yeah, we have, yeah, yeah. A Ruffin conversation, yes, that's right. That's right. I used to go there as a little girl. Loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty nice place. Uh, right then. So we're going to spend a bit of time just getting to find out about you and your improv journey and other things that make you tick. So I'm going to start off just by asking, how did you get into improv? Well, I started out um, first. My first experience of improv was during my training to be an actress. Okay. Improv was just another class in the week, like movement or mime or singing. You had to do improv every so often, and I liked it. It uh, it was simply sold to me as improv. You make it up as you go along, <laughs> and we just did it for a half an hour, an hour a week, and it was it was good. And that was the end of it. Years later, I'm in America and somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm in a play in America. And right. uh, somebody says, oh, when this play's over, I'm going to be doing this improv thing. I'm like, improvisation? What do you mean? Yeah, we're going to do it for an audience. I'd never heard it. I'd never <laughs> heard of it. It's like, what are you going to have my singing class in front of an audience now as well? <laughs> so uh, the funny thing was, it was in a bar in Santa Barbara, as a matter of fact. And okay. uh, so my first real performing improv experience was in a bar where pretty much after 9 p.m. they laughed at whatever you did. <laughs> uh, and I, again, didn't realize this was so I thought that was improv. That was improv performing. Didn't realize. And then I gave that a rest because it was a little nerve wracking. I used to get nervous beforehand yeah. and start to worry about what I was going to do that night and what I was going to say. Basically, I was already trying to write a script in my head yeah. for, for my improv performance. <laughs> And uh, it was just too much stress. I couldn't do it. So I left it alone. And then just recently, in the last few years, a friend in town said, I'm going to start an improv group. And I went and loved it because I saw what it did to my mind. Ah. By then, I was a lot older. And I realized, hey, improv's a really good way to calm down my incredibly over, too speeded up brain uh, and calm it down and channel the energies into something you know, manageable, first of all, <laughs> and with a good creative result. Yeah. Um, so I started doing it and then came COVID and then came Zoom. Yeah. And then my life really opened up, really opened up. Yeah. And I think I might be addicted to it now, actually. <laughs> so you mentioned, you mentioned there as, um, as a young actress, improv was just this thing you used to do for short periods of time. Uh, probably is a warm-up i imagine yes and the idea of improv being the the main event as an actress did that scare you the thought of going out there without 
lines prepared? Actually, it did not. Um, it, it's funny, as an actress, I, um, I loved the idea of it. And I had also done some theatrical performances in the past. I once wrote a play that I never wrote down on paper. <laughs> Oh, wow. And the producer was horrified. It was part of an evening of different plays uh, that local people had written and mine didn't have a script. And I went out every night. I knew the points I needed to hit. I knew roughly the story. I was telling the same story every night, but I never had a script. And I remember it being terrifying before I walked on stage, but also really exhilarating. And of course, it was fresh. There was a freshness to my performance that the others with their scripts didn't quite have. So I, I wasn't scared of it. By the time I went to improv, as you and I now know it, yeah. um, I was kind of embracing it. But I did find my acting life tripped me up a little bit with improv in the beginning, to be honest. Um, because I'm a playwright, it was very hard for me not to be writing the scenes in a <laughs> yeah. scene improv or trying to push people somehow into my storyline that I had decided was going <laughs> to happen. It, it took me a long time. I also didn't quite understand um, some of the ideas behind improv. I kind of think I'm a journeyman, a journeyman improviser. I very much <laughs> taught myself as I've gone. And I, I didn't really have anybody saying, no, no, that's not what you do. No, this is the format. First time we ever did a montage with a monologue, I I gave the monologue. It was my turn to do the monologue. I found that easy. I had a nice little monologue. And then I proceeded to act out the entire monologue <laughs> that I just said and sort of push people to do, okay, but remember the next bit's where the cupcakes fall. Remember in the monologue? We've got to do that scene next. I had no idea that we weren't, you know, writing a play beforehand. I just didn't get it. It took me about a year to really understand how to be an improviser so when you got into improv again a few years ago and properly started to discover what it was what kind of improv was it was it short form was it long form was it a combination it was a combo i i um found myself in a weekly long form group i'm sorry a weekly short form group that was great and i still do go to it well i will when we reopen yeah. um and that evolved into a group of us beginning to do long form together and we were all somewhat you know scratching our way into doing it we'd seen other long form troops and i'd really loved what they did and was blown away by how they could do it um and we tried to do it ourselves and we we did again in a very journeyman kind of way we made tons of mistakes we're called the reverberators by the way mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, we practiced in a yoga studio and the echo was so bad it reverberated. So that's uh, why we <laughs> reverberated. <laughs> but yeah, um, we learned, we had to learn it slowly. And in this town that I live in, there are some troops, but um, you know, nothing really, uh, we've only got like one or two. There's not a huge amount going on yeah. here. I love hearing how troops get their names. Yeah. So I'm always thinking of that too. I'm always now nowadays. I'm always thinking, oh, that would be a great name for a two prov, or that would be a great <laughs> name for a group. Yeah. yeah, and I love it when when it's stories like yours where oh, you're in a room and it's reverberating. Oh, that should be our name. It's just great. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you're an actress, and I'd like to delve into that a little bit and find out, you know, how did you get into acting? How old were you when you got into acting, and what is your acting journey? Well, I was one of those kids as very hyperactive kid and the grown ups just could not deal with me as a child. Uh, grew up in England, in London, grew up in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, the, the adults just wanted to, me to leave them alone. And I was fascinated by adults. I was constantly listening at doors. I was always being banished from rooms for being a nuisance. So I'd listen at the door and listen to grown ups talking and they'd be drinking and smoking and talking. And I'd be listening and sucking it all up as a very young child. And constantly grown ups would say over my head, oh, this one's a right actress or uh, you got, a, <laughs> got an actress here or she's going to be a right drama queen when she grows up. Well, I would overhear this 
little eavesdropper that I was. And I just sort of assumed it was the truth. I remember hearing grown-ups, I now realize sarcastically saying, oh, she's going to be an actress, this one. And I would just go, oh, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be an actress. That's what the grown-ups say. Cool. And very early on about the, I went to see a play when I was seven. My friends, my mum's friend was in drama school and she went to RADA and she was in a production of Three Sisters by Chekhov. My mum couldn't get a babysitter. So she dragged me with, it was my first theatre experience, as in watching a play. And she said, like, when the lights go down, you don't say a word. You keep your mouth <laughs> shut until the lights come up. I want you near your shenanigans. Well, I saw my mum's friend, Pauline, on stage and I knew Pauline. She was always at my house. But yeah. it wasn't Pauline, but it was Pauline, but it mm -hmm. wasn't. I was, I was transfixed. And I remember going backstage afterwards to the dressing room and just completely falling in love with the whole craziness back there and announcing at the age of seven that, yeah, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be an actress. So where did you go from there? What was your first move? My first move was to pester every adult possible until they had no alternative but to send me to Saturday morning drama club. And I went to many. I went to a place called Group 64 in Putney. <laughs> and I went to the De Leon Drama School in Richmond, which was a summer thing where they really, you know, put you through your paces. In two weeks, you were up and doing a show with costumes. And, cool. and I just, again, I suppose, journeymaned my way around. Um, but I left, I, um, you know, ran into a few life problems along the way, <laughs> took a few deviations, got myself into trouble, got myself out of trouble. And before I knew it, I was sort of uh, just working my way around as an actress, wherever the jobs were, and um, went pretty much all over the world, lived in India for a while. Cool. Started out getting a job um, as a dancer, as part of a, just a big dance troupe that went to India and then basically stayed for three years because I thought it was so great. And, uh, you know, when you're younger like that as well, I always think you might as well do all that stuff when you're younger because you think you're going to do it when you're older, but stuff gets in the way. Yeah. You know, life, life gets in the way. So uh, I had a lot of adventures and um, ended up writing plays often cool. about my adventures, um, putting them on with friends, um, doing all kinds of stuff. You know, we live in, we live quite near LA and ironically, LA is quite a good theater town as well as, yeah. uh, you know, obviously we're yeah, as well as the screen. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned there about the dancing. Was that something that you just sort of said, Hey, I'm just going to go and dance. Or did you have dance training as well as uh, drama well, training? I loved dance, but we were very poor and it was very obvious. Ballet lessons were way out of our league. <laughs> but what I would do is whenever I remember, there was a gymnast called Olga Corbett. She was this petite little Russian delight. And in the Olympics in the seventies, she wowed audiences with her floor display and I would copy them. Oh, okay. I would on the black and white telly, I'd be trying to do this, couldn't do any of it, but I would emote dramatically. I could do the dying swan hmm. from Swan Lake. I could do all this emotion. My feet weren't doing the right things. <laughs> the top half of my body was whatever it needed to be. So I sort of faked, I, to be honest, I faked my way into being a dancer. Right. I'd always been able to move pretty well. And I just stayed away from ballet auditions because I knew that. <laughs> question but anything that was kind of in those days they called it modern dance yeah um anything that was like that uh you could get away with a lot to be honest by just having long blonde hair and smiling <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you could get all kinds of jobs around the world real legit jobs i i did a disneyland stint oh cool um just they used to have a nightly parade uh, every day in Disneyland, there would be a parade around six o'clock with all these electric lights and they need hundreds of people for those parades and they pay them all. It's astonishing, yeah. actually. Um, yeah, I'd be a princess one night, another night they'd need someone to be some kind of hedgehog and whoever <laughs> hadn't shown up for work, you had to wear their costume. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. Disneyland. <laughs> 
It's so a, the whole corporation, I'll say that, working there, getting the job there is insane. It's like working for the government, the amount oh, really? of levels you yeah. Oh, my word. I guess they've got to really protect their image, though, haven't they? And they also got to kind of protect their customers. They can't really let they they really vet who you are. And I guess it, it makes sense, of course. It does make sense. Yeah. You don't want Charles Manson being, you know, in the you don't want Charles Manson in your parade every day. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> so <laughs> with the the acting and the dancing, have you always just been a stage person or have you ever ventured into screen? I have always been a stage person and loved the stage. And I have been on screen in certain things. And whenever I see myself on screen, I cringe because I'm I'm such a stage person that I'm a bit too big for the camera. And I find it a little grotesque. My, my uh, you know, I look at my face and go, would you keep the face still? Uh, I feel like I'm just better on a stage. <laughs> um, I've enjoyed, the work I've done in movies, little tiny indie things around the place. But I've always just thought it's not very fulfilling for an actor. I like to tell a story. Yeah. I don't want to be, let's start with when you die. And then we're going to shoot to that scene where you're in the rain five years earlier. It's I'm uh, very impressed with state, uh, screen actors. They can immediately jump into anywhere in the story. I like a nice build up and yeah. get into the profound depths of my soul i i regularly talk um about acting with uh, actor friends and talk about the the difference between screen acting and stage acting and it's it's just about the subtleties so screen acting yes. it's about those small little face movements whereas on the stage everything's larger than life that's right and actually a year of zoom has been very good for someone like me learning to try and rein it in a little bit with you know just not being so big and like you said being a little more subtle yeah uh, zoom and improv's taught me a lot in the last year i think i'm going to go back to on stage improv as a very different performer i hope a better one i, I think so and just with the the pandemic over the last year as an actress has that been tough for you to to yes, not have places to act yeah, and I think that's why I embraced the uh, improv world so readily. Yeah. Um, these days, I've been earning my living more as a writer. And that kind of dried up too. When the pandemic first started, I had a wonderfully romantic idea of, I'm just going to write and write. There's going to be all this time. It didn't work out that way at all. I haven't written a damn thing, really. But I've done <laughs> a lot of improv. And I found myself just what I did to choose where to go with this giant world of online improv yeah. was I kind of went back through my life and I Liverpool comedy improv with Emma Bird. I found that simply because I Googled improv Liverpool because I spent a lot of my childhood in Liverpool. Ah, cool. My grandma lived there in Garston. Garston and Egberth and Allerton are the three sort of little areas of Liverpool that I uh, went every summer and spent every summer holiday with my grandma. Oh, great. Um, so I had this affiliation with Liverpool. I also was raised in Brixton in London and saw that there was a Brixton improv called DD Duck Duck Goose, DGG. And I simply joined them because Brixton, I know Brixton. Um, yeah. That was how I was sort of choosing my places. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, just, I just want to ask you about your writing just for a second. I just want to ask yes. about the process of writing. So do you have people come to you sometimes and say oh can you write something for this or do you just trust your own instincts and think right i'm going to write something and then i'm going to take it to others or is it a well that's a good question actually um i'd like to say a little bit of both i have been in a very fortunate position for the last 20 years i have been the artistic director of a really good youth theater project called oh, upstarts cool. and it necessitates me writing one Two act musical every year for the for the company, uh, which was great. I was basically commissioned to come up with a play every year. I was paid to sit down and write this play. It was a it's a great position to be in. Um, so I would cough up one 
big musical a year that I, I was always careful to write them. Even though I knew a youth theater was gonna do its first performance, I always wrote them with an idea to be performed by adults. They have a slightly panto flavor to them. Um, and, and done by adults, they're, they're amazing because there's a slight, they're, they're, it's rather ridiculous seeing adults do this, it's wonderful. Yeah. So I have that group of plays that basically I'm commissioned to write. And then I would often be in situations where someone would approach me and say, oh, such and such a theatre is putting together an evening of expat playwrights. Okay. So there's quite a lot of Brits in America, of course, who are writers. Yeah. So there'd be an expats uh show or uh, people are putting together plays about love, 10 minute plays. Those were very popular for a while. Um, I wrote a series of plays that featured one woman. They were all one act plays about a woman and it went through her life. They're really a triptych. They're supposed to be performed in one evening. Um, so and they're darker. It's funny. I've got these light, frothy, slightly pantomime like ones. And then these really rather dark uh depressing plays really about some sorts of human conditions oh yeah so good amount of variety then yes yeah anybody um, wants to play just call me <laughs> and with the with the musicals do yes. you work with someone that writes music or do you write the music i usually write the lyrics oh, okay. and i will um either sometimes i have actually uh, surprised myself and in a pinch written the the music and the way I write music is ridiculous I can roughly read music like most English kids I grew up learning the recorder in school I was in the school orchestra where there was like 170 recorders in the orchestra so I can read a bit of music but I have a friend who's a musical director and usually what happens is I will call him up and on his on his message, he doesn't answer his phone. He lets me leave a message and I sing what I want. Oh, wow. So I would I wrote a song uh, about food and it went, we're good for you. You know, we are now. I don't know how to write that in music. So I sang that down his phone. Then he would put it on manuscript. He would write my song out onto manuscript paper. And then this shows you, this dates me. And then he would fax that back to me. <laughs> and that was how I wrote a song with an answering machine and a fax machine. Wow, that's a great story. And, and it would work great. It would work really well. It was way better than me going to a musical studio and uh, making a fool of myself, basically. So and when the music was written. Yes. Was it always how you imagined it or was did it not yes, all... it was. It was. It was. And some of that would be because I knew the guy so well, I was always comfortable going, no, 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 no. Whereas if I was, if it hadn't been a friend, I would have probably been polite or secretly disappointed maybe, but not wanting to tread on toes. Whereas with a friend like this, I can say, no, let me sing it again, you know? Yeah. And we get what I want. I only ask that. It's just because... I, at one stage in my life, I used to write a charity Christmas song every year yeah. for uh, school children to sing. And I am a musician, but I'm not like a great technical musician. I don't sort of write my music down. I'm just sort of self-taught. Yeah. And I used to write these, these songs. And then I knew this really great uh, piano teacher. She was like this incredible pianist, the top grade, like grade eight been playing for years really talented and she would uh put my songs into written music for me and then she'd play them to me and i'm like no it's not you're yeah. not playing it right and I'm, I'm like this i felt like really bad telling this incredible piano player that she's not playing my songs right and yes wow. what what she'd written was technically correct but the feel was wrong <laughs> I know, I, exactly. I actually have graduated onto one of these. This is a thumb piano. Oh, awesome. That's useful for kind of just fiddling with and kind of going, oh, there's a song. <laughs> and then I'll go from there, you know. No, I'm very, I would, I, would I would think my musical prowess is actually pretty primitive, but I have a really incredible trivia knowledge in my brain of, pop songs 
obviously, I guess, starting with my childhood, but songs have always got stuck in my brain and I'll remember song quirky little maggots that won't go away. So I, I kind of remember stuff and usually incorporate it. I wrote a whole song based on the Fry's Turkish Delight advert <laughs> from England. English adverts have lots of good music in them, actually. Yeah, and I, I think also TV shows used to have great music in them, but yes. they don't they don't do great intros anymore because people are too concerned about uh, getting to the action quickly. Yeah. No, so you look at all those TV shows that from the 70s, like Z Cars and these like British BBC cop shows, you'll realize at the end, oh, they've got the BBC orchestra yeah. playing the signature tune. It'll be a big brass band number or jazzy or something. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find when you're putting songs in, in these things that you write, do you often use things that come from your childhood that in America they don't actually know? Oh, gosh, yes, yes. Well, not just in the songs. I wrote a whole, uh, <laughs> as a kid, uh, going to school, I would have um, for lunches, my mum would give me spam and ketchup sandwiches. <laughs> yes. Delightful. I'll give you a great idea of the cuisine I grew up on. <laughs> By the time I unwrapped them at lunchtime, this ketchup would have bled through the mother's pride plastic <laughs> white bread. And the kids would all scream and say, EJ sandwich is bleeding and, <laughs> and back away from me in horror. And years later, I wrote a kind of spoof of Peter Pan called Peter Spam. <laughs> and uh, Peter, Peter Spam is addicted to spam and ketchup sandwiches. And they went at this, this whole spam and ketchup went through the play. And it must have been what, 40 years ago, I went through this <laughs> Emma's sandwich a bleeding ordeal, but somehow it's still in there. And I think I ran a, I wrote a song about spam. Yeah, might as well eat spam. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, funny. And yeah, those things just stick in your brain. And the Americans that I was working with, a lot of them didn't even know what spam was, even though it's on their shelves. I had to. They're yeah. all too healthy in Southern California. I had to teach them to go to the supermarket to the meat. The, the tinned meat aisle. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that sticks out to me that is really different between America and the UK is Christmas songs. Like what we have as Christmas songs and what they have as Christmas songs are like completely different. Yes, yes. Yeah, when I went back to England for the first time, I'd been gone for, oh, something like 12 years without being back and been a long time. I almost couldn't remember what it was like. And I get on a Virgin Airways plane, it was around <laughs> Christmas, and they're playing Wizard, that song by Wizard, the Christmas song. Yeah, oh, I wish it, it could, could be, be Christmas, Christmas every, every day. day. I almost burst into tears. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. To this day, I, I imagine the inside of a, an airplane and putting my luggage up in the bins above and hearing that song followed by mud and that yes. Christmas song. <laughs> and I hadn't thought of them for years and it was like almost tearful for me. And, you know, no one else is batting an eyelid. They hear it every year. The English hear it every year on the radio, don't yeah. they? Yeah, 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 totally. And it's just kind of this massive tradition to have these songs. But then in America, from what I gather, it's quite traditional with a lot of their American songs. Yes, it'll be. I mean, it's a very because you've got you've got your Christmas songs and you've got your holiday songs. Right. What to be. Uh, and then there's. Um, I mean, there's a lot of those ways. I, always a safe bet would be to throw on Bing Crosby White Christmas. That would be a safe, not offending anyone area. Yeah. <laughs> it's always best to celebrate the season and not the, not the religion I've found. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so many different people. Not everyone celebrates Christmas. Not everyone celebrates Hanukkah. Not everybody celebrates, period. Full stop, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I just want to come back around to you living in Santa Barbara now. So you, you traveled around a lot. You've seems like yes. you've had a very exciting life. What is it that uh, made you sort of settle in Santa Barbara? Well, that's a very good question. I came here pretty much on a whim and in many ways it was on a whim. I was very young. I was about 24, I think. Actually, I know exactly when I came. It was the day the Challenger explosion happened. Oh. So it was 86, we get the first part of the year, I want to say January 28th, something like that. 
I always am very aware of how many years I've been in the States because on the news it will say, today's the oomph anniversary of the Challenger explosion. And it was a very uh, sad day to arrive anywhere, but it, to arrive at LAX, I didn't know this had happened. I was in the air myself when it happened on this yeah. long flight to America. So um, I came out of the airport, my first trip to America, and just inside the airport, everybody was quiet. That was what was weird. And I'd had right. no idea why. It took me a while to even realize what was strange. So um, I came here thinking I'd be here. I had a visa for six months. So I thought maybe I can stay for six months. Everyone in England would talk glowing terms about going to America. <laughs> I was bitterly disappointed when I came to Santa Barbara because there's no skyscrapers. <laughs> it, it's on the ocean, but we have um, everything's a, a two story building is quite a big building here. Right. Um, yeah, it's just not built like it's not the streets of San Francisco, it's not New York. And I ended up sort of just having a great old time until one day it occurred to me, um, you can't be on holiday forever. <laughs> you know, I just been sort of drifting from one experience to the other. And I had a job in a bar, which is pretty much standard when you first arrive somewhere and just want to get a quick job, you know. Um, and it took me a while. I ended up falling in love and getting married. And that probably was the first you know, tent peg in the ground of staying here. Um, and then I eventually had kids. So, you know, life, life just kind of happened. Then I got a real job, a normal job, like a normal person <laughs> where I taught drama in a school and had like a, a schedule and a paycheck. Uh, paycheck will do a lot to keeping you in an area. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. What did it, what did it feel like to have a normal job like normal people? Oh God, it was weird. I remember at the time I wasn't married to my husband at the time. He was my boyfriend. And I remember kind of sort of white lying about things like I'd call him my husband rather than my boyfriend because I thought <laughs> it made me seem more respectable. Right. I was always trying to, I felt like a bit of a fraud. So I probably spent a good couple of years trying to sort of blend into the background and it just wasn't you can't blend into the background when you're the drama teacher putting on giant plays uh but i kind of found my footing after a while and settled in there uh but it was strange after a lifetime i was even weird at the bank cashing my check i used to feel like <laughs> like someone was going to come and say come on now you know you shouldn't be in here give me that piece of paper you've got no business being in a bank but I bet the I bet the children really benefited from having someone that was like genuinely passionate about the subject. I think they did, and to this day, I have friends who are now you know in their early twenties. Some of them are in New York, being actors. Um, awesome. You know, it stayed with them forever. A fire got lit uh, during their elementary school years, their primary school years, that led them forward. Several of them are working actors and and artists, which I love. Yeah, that's so cool that you've had that impact in their life. Yeah, and it, I forget it until someone, I'll bump into someone. One of the nice things about living in a small town is you bump into people that you know. And I'm always yeah. bumping into people I've taught, always. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah, I get that feeling. I'm a teacher myself, so I know what that's oh, like. Oh, right. What do you teach? I'm a primary school teacher. So, so I, you know exactly the age group. How old is the oldest at a primary school? Uh, so the oldest is 11 and I teach nine and 10 year olds currently. Yes. So, so you're the, the classroom teacher for one, yeah. you have a class and you teach all the subjects or oh, do they so, go to so-and-so for geography and so-and-so for math? No, I teach them everything. Yeah. Well, or at least I try to. <laughs> yeah. That's the same as in America. I feel like when I was in school in England, no, I guess you're right. We did have one teacher for everything at yeah, that then, age. Yeah, and then when you get to high school, that's that's when that's you right. go after your different teachers. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, now, for people listening, I just want to say that behind EJ, there's this big sort of mouth. Um, I, I don't really know how to describe it. A, a big, a big mouth it's on a, a pole. Yeah, it's actually a puppet. It's a it's a puppet that when it works, all you see is this gigantic mouth on a stick. The actor, the puppetist, it manipulates it from behind. 
Uh, it's made of paper mache, so it's actually quite light. Pretty much all that I make a lot of puppets and giant props, and they're pretty much all lightweight. That's a brain. Okay, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of body parts for some reason right now. I'm not sure what's going on with me, but I'm making eyeballs and brains. Um, but yeah, when I was looking through your Facebook page to yes. just sort of learn a bit about you before this interview, I saw all of of the sort of the puppetry that you do, and I love yeah. puppets. I love watching them. I think I think puppeteers are incredible and so talented uh, to be able to manipulate them, especially the ones that sort of are in a scene with the puppet and they're like basically playing two characters at once yes so i just i'd love to talk to you about sort of how you got into puppeteering and then into making the puppets as well well i married a sculptor is ah. what happened i married my husband is an artist and he can pretty much do anything with his hands he can turn his hands to anything so when i met him he was in charge of a big parade that happens locally and he loved giant puppets and he made room-sized puppets. I mean, enormous puppets that are built to be manipulated by a team of people. And paper mache, papier mache was uh, one of the mediums. He uses all kinds of stuff, but he taught me that early on so I could make a giant puppet to walk in a parade with. Again, being a lightweight puppet was very important. Well, because I'd done so much theater and so much dance and just written plays, I immediately fell in love with this new thing of building puppets that I could work myself, particularly the type you mentioned where an actor will be on stage in the puppet and working the puppet. And yet what I like is when the actor sort of disappears, even though you see him yeah. after a while, the puppet takes over. A really good example of that is in uh, The Lion King, the stage show. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. And oh, it's a, isn't it astonishing? It's the most amazing. Shout out to Julie Taymor, who, if I could be Julie Taymor, I would be happy. She's one of those. She has the life I want, which is she's an, a director, a choreographer. She does it all. And I yeah. like that. I like doing it all. I guess I, I must be a control freak. But um, to make a puppet that you can wear and then the audience notices you at first and they marvel at you at first, but after a while they realize I've actually disappeared the person behind the puppet. Yeah. And I just see the puppet. I have this nose. I'm making this what giant nose puppet right now. It's hard to show you. That's a nostril. But the idea is I would wear it okay. and probably wear all black, including probably cover my face too. So all you see is just a black blob and this giant pink nose. And after a while, I'm hoping that the, the eye disappear and all you see is the nose. <laughs> I hope. That, that is, it's, it's so interesting. I just, I just love all of that. Yeah, it's so funny to talk about it for like a radio, a, a, a <laughs> podcast where you don't see. Yeah. Hopefully that makes sense to people. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I learned about puppets, uh, quite a learned, so I love puppets. And as a teacher years ago, I thought, oh, I'm going to get a puppet because I was a music teacher for a long time. Oh, uh, yeah. Just teaching uh, in a primary school, all the different age groups, just music. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to get a puppet. And I found this puppet and I was like, yeah, that's the puppet for me. And I tried to teach myself how to be a ventriloquist and speak without moving my mouth. Yes. And it was really hard. And then I learned really quickly, oh, actually, it doesn't matter because the children are so engaged with the puppet that they're not focusing on me. And even if they are looking at me, they enjoy the character of the puppet so much that they actually don't care that my mouth is moving. Yeah. And also sometimes even they can see your mouth moving, but they, it's almost like they, they're in on the game with you. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's all, let's suspend our disbelief and pretend I'm not really here doing it. And they kind of like it. It's part of you as well. It's part of the character of you. Yeah, totally. Because yeah. You, like my puppet held say things that like me as a teacher, I can't possibly say. Oh yeah. But, and then they're like, you can't say that. And I'm like, I didn't say that. He said that. And then I have to tell him off for saying it. Rod Hull and Emu. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. What he got away with? <laughs> I would just be transfixed at this guy. Like, I couldn't get my eyes off what he was getting away with, with the, all with the puppet. It's wonderful. Yeah, it really is fascinating. So you've been doing improv with puppets, haven't you? Can you talk about that, where you do that, how people can see it? Um, 
Actually, well, I, I, I want to do more improv with puppets. I'm part of the cast of Disaster Time, which is a weekly uh, improvised movie that's on that we do on Twitch. Um, I'm a new member of the cast. And Brenna Judkins, who is our, our leader, uh, also does puppet workshops. Yeah. And so she has been working on workshops with people and getting them simply to make sock puppets. And she's been doing quite a lot of work with getting those puppets to make stories together. My puppets are so giant <laughs> that uh, I can't really do them on Zoom unless I sort of stand up my driveway and scream down towards the camera because you can't really get an idea. <laughs> They're too bloody big for the screen. <laughs> so uh, I've got to find a way. I've been making puppets like this. I've basically been pulling toys oh, wow. and, <laughs> and make Frankensteining. This is a doll with three heads, you know, but at least she fits in the screen. So, um, but I've been doing work on screen with <clears throat> my entire body off screen. So all you see is the puppet. Okay. Of course, that's a whole other challenge. My arms, your arm, the bicep muscle is killing you. <laughs> About two minutes into a 20 minute show, you realize, oh, this is a mistake. I can't keep my arm up. <laughs> and you're, you're running out of things to say because your yeah. arm hurts so much. <laughs> In, yeah. Ameri in America, can I ask, do they have Punch and Judy in America? No, and I do a Punch and Judy show. Oh, you do? And, yes, and it's extremely tricky because, of course, Punch would always hit Judy. Yeah. This is an old form going way back to Commedia dell'arte where the audiences would roar with laughter at a shrewish wife getting her just desserts and getting <laughs> bonked on the head by her husband. Yeah. And that was acceptable. Now, of course, nowadays we see the darker side of bonking your wife on the head. Yeah. So, and, and, and in America, the first time I did a Punch and Judy show, which thank God was for friends, I literally was met with silence at the end. Oh. And someone said, really? Like, as though I'd been, as though I'd made it up myself, <laughs> actually. Um, so I actually have come up with a new one called, uh, it's, it stars, um, I do a Punch and Judy show with a striped tent, just like yeah. we know. But uh, what my idea is, is to do, it's done with office supplies. So it's punch hole, <laughs> hole <Okay>. punch, <laughs> it's done with a hole punch, and Judy, who is the uh, secretary. <laughs> and it's a, it's a puppet show of Judy and her office supplies. And uh, and they get violent, but they get violent. People don't mind a stapler beating up a hole puncher. They don't mind that. <laughs> so we're sticking to that. It's not got quite the same classic ring to it, but yeah. you're right, they don't have Punch and Judy in America and doing it at the beach would be perilous. You know how in England oh, you yeah. can up at the beach, do it, and the idea is children would gather. I'd, I think I'd probably get people throwing stones at me. <laughs> yeah, God. I brought up Punch and Judy because a few years ago we had a group of year one, two children. So the infants in school went to Llandidno in North Wales for like a day at the beach. And as part of that day, they were treated to a Punch and Judy show. And the teacher came back and she was traumatized. She was like, I can't believe I let the children sit and watch that. She was like, there was like wife abuse. They threw a baby down the stairs <laughs> and all this stuff. And I was and I was thinking back, oh yeah, like Punch and Judy, it's like so un PC. Like I don't know how That's they right. stick put the shows on. <laughs> and it's so funny because as as kids, we laughed at it, but we also kind of rolled our eyes. Even as kids, we knew it was sort of ridiculous and, and wrong. And that was part of the joy of it. Like you said, a puppet can get away with it more than a, yeah. a, a, a human um but you're right i mean we were just accepting that this was the norm unquestioningly i will add unquestionably oh she's a she's a bad wife give her a hit on the head with a club <laughs> caveman stick oh it was a stick yeah yeah or a truncheon i think it was there, there, there was always a policeman there was also and a, a policeman a and a crocodile uh, yeah and a crocodile a crocodile <laughs> why you know <laughs> I mean, even if that thing had its roots in Italy, yeah. it made it logic. Where's the crocodile coming yeah. from? It's so random. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're such a weird uh, country when it comes to humor, aren't we? Yes. Well, I watched Faulty Towers recently. I'd been in some improv thing where that kept getting referenced. And I thought, oh, I got to watch that again. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I was, 
And I told everyone, oh, John Cleese, Multi Towers. And then we're watching it and I'm realizing it's racist, it's bigoted, it's sex, yeah. it's all this stuff. And, and we're, and it is yet, there were funny jokes in it. There were funny ideas in it, but just that 1970s idea of humor really was different. And I and only now do I see it. I didn't see it then. Yeah. Well, even in my time, so I sort of grew up through the 80s and 90s. And in the yeah. 90s, the BBC had this children's TV show called Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. And it was written by Tony Robinson. And it was basically Blackadder for children. And yeah. I used to love it. And I watch it now and I'm like, there is no way on earth that you could air the show to children these days because really? it would all be banned. I got to write that down. I got to see it. I never see it. I'd left England by then. <laughs> I just um, found out Terry Wogan died. Oh yeah, I was on an improv. I had to find that out in an American improv group. Really? Oh Where yeah, Terry Wogan stuff. And I'm like, did he die? And they're like, yes. <laughs> um, well, I've just seen the time, and we are we're at our time. I'm afraid. I wish I could talk longer because it's been wow. a great chat. It um, but just before we finish, do you want to advertise uh, places where you are improvising or doing any kind of shows where people can tune in and watch or join in with you? Well, I do want to give a shout out to LCI, Liverpool Comedy Improv, first of all, because um, it's just a really wonderful resource. Emma Bird works really hard to just bring a great schedule every week uh, where you really have a lot of fun and learn stuff. I feel like I learned a lot there. Yeah. Um, but I'm working with Disaster Time, which is every Wednesday night on Twitch. Uh, but you, we have a Facebook page, I guess. It's a Disaster Time, exclamation mark. Um, that's what I'm working on right now and about to head into IRL Improv next week. Oh, exciting. First time. And uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm also working in India um, with the Pune Improv, which means I have to be smiling in front of a camera usually at about 5 a.m and <laughs> oh, it's hard but never mind it, yeah isn't it so They're cool 12 that you and can? A half hours. say that again isn't it so cool that you can be improvising yes. with people in india well that's the truth isn't it yeah i mean i don't know about you but i feel like i have these f wonderful friends that i've never met yeah 100 percent. i've got an entire comedy troupe that i've uh, formed in this time with uh like majority of people I've, I've not met in real life yeah yeah it's wonderful and I, I hope it doesn't end i really do i i hear the word you know irl going back to in real life and i part of me my heart sinks because i want to be able to keep this side going yeah sure. I, I think that this will stay it's been it's yeah. been too good to just yes. say goodbye to it yeah, I agree. That's a really good way of putting it. It's been too good to say goodbye to it. And we've, you know, we can't say goodbye to having friends in the Philippines. And I've got friends in places I've never even heard of. Yeah. Legit. Yeah. Is... Like you, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> and um, like, from my perspective, I actually met my girlfriend through online improv. No way. Yeah, we met we at LCI. Met now, I don't want to sort of cry i mean i know you say girlfriend but if you haven't met her in person ian it doesn't count <laughs> uh yeah i can confirm i'm in a house right now and we're we're currently purchasing a, a property together so good lord the, the the pandemic hasn't been long enough to have achieved all that <laughs> my god i love it zoom romance yeah it's what it is beautiful <laughs> uh so thank you very much we're gonna end this interview now but it's been an absolute pleasure thanks it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you for asking me, and that was wonderful. Hi, you're very welcome. Well, thank you so much to EJ for that incredible interview. What a fascinating life story she has. I feel like, I often say this, but I feel like I have really only just scratched the surface and there's so much more to hear from EJ. Uh, so if you are going to be doing online improv, or you want to watch some of the shows that EJ said that she's going to be doing, please do check her out. She really is an energetic performer, a great character performer from the small experience I've had of seeing her perform, and she's just someone that is definitely worth checking out. Now, if you'd have told me a year ago that I'd have been having this conversation with somebody on the other side of the world, 
um, and bringing it to you in this way, I, I probably would not have believed you. But how fascinating it is that in this time of, of pandemic and lockdowns, the improv community has become what it is. I have this podcast because there was a pandemic which which led to us connecting in a completely different way and i think that's what's really fascinating about about the world and and, and how it evolves and and specifically how improv fits into that improv is the very essence of taking a situation and making it work and i think that's probably why improv has just thrived so much during this pandemic because yeah we've just said yes and this is how it is and this is what improv is going to be like while we need it to be like this and then we're going to go back to in real life as we spoke about there in the podcast and we're still going to want to hold on to this wonderful creation of zoomprov that has happened so yes life throws us many curveballs but if we can treat everything the way that we treat everything in improv then there really can be so much positivity to come out of situations where at first glance you think oh it's all doom and gloom but no say yes and and find that positivity now if you are interested in getting into improv or already involved in improv and want to try out a different improv scene then all the info you need can be found at www.liverpoolcomedyimprov.co.uk you can also check us out on facebook by searching for liverpool comedy improv and on twitter and instagram we are at live comedy improv you can also check out the liverpool comedy improv cast facebook page if you follow us on there you'll see all of the trailers dropped every week for the new episodes that are upcoming and then you'll get the show link dropped every monday morning but if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts you can get it straight into your inbox every week anyway uh, if you are a member of the lci community and you would like to be a guest on the show then please get in touch with me or with emma bird and we'll make the arrangements as soon as possible if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to uh, like the show, rate the show with five stars, give us a, a nice review to just really let us know if you're enjoying the show. Things like that really help to boost the show and help get our name out there. Anything that you can do to help the show, we really appreciate. If you want to check me out on the interweb, then you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Ian Luke Jones. And if you check out my YouTube in particular on my channel, you'll find a weekly motivational Monday video, a weekly humorous moment video, all sorts of improv videos. There's music on there. There's holiday videos. There's all sorts, you know, a little bit of something for everyone. So thank you very much for listening. But before I go, here are some words that are truly wise, wise, wise. Always remember, whatever the situation, to treat life like improv and yes and